Hi everyone, I'm Madden. And I'm Zoe. And this is the Unnamed O Podcast. And today we have a very special episode for you featuring an interview with a real-life cold case investigator. This is the story of the woman in the quilt, now known as Peggy Joyce Shelton. If you follow us on Instagram, you might have seen our post about a Jane Doe we covered being identified. If you don't follow us, here's the big news. Edna Jane Doe, from our second episode ever, was recently publicly identified as Peggy Joyce Shelton from Kentucky. After the news about her identification, I reached out to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office, and they were kind enough to offer us an interview with cold case detective George Lloydgren to discuss Peggy's identification and her ongoing homicide investigation. The rest of this episode is going to be mostly the recorded interview with Detective Lloyd Grin. But first, we have an update for you. We wanted to announce that we are going to be changing our release schedule. Starting now, we'll be releasing one episode every other week. We love sharing weekly episodes with you guys, but due to some ongoing life circumstances, it's just not possible for the foreseeable future. Once things settle down, we hope to have enough time to bring you weekly cases again. But we didn't want to sacrifice the quality of our research and episodes just because of a lack of time. You guys deserve nothing but the best episodes we can give you. So for now, that means we need a little more time to do the research and investigating that we want to do for each case. Okay, that wraps up our announcement segment. Just know that we love you guys and we love how much you support these Doe cases, and we're just doing this to make sure you get the quality you're used to. So without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Detective Lloydgren. Can you go ahead and just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about your background and your expertise? Uh, my name is George Lloydgren. I'm a detective with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office in Florida. I've been here for 18 full years uh, as a detective. The last nine years and a couple of months in the cold case unit, I've uh, previously worked for New York City Police Department where I was a police officer and a detective for 20 years until I retired. Um, Then moving here to sunny Florida. Uh, Married, I have three children, six grandchildren. Um, Good thing, I have a good support system through my family. My wife Nancy has been very understanding of all the hours I've taken away from our life and as, as are my children and grandchildren over the years when it comes to police work. Um, I mean, other than that, I I mean, I have training in <clears throat> homicide investigations to start and uh, other sexually related crimes, investigations on what's called deviant sexual behavior and other things like that. I've had training in investigations as a whole in general, um, firearms, uh, auto crime training, um, different things like that over the years, crime scene tra- uh, reconstruction training, things to help in in my job performance, and to you know make me a better investigator all around. Wow, that is very impressive. You sound like just the guy that this case needed. To be honest, <laughs> well, uh, the old saying is you know I'd rather be lucky than good any day. Uh, I'd rather be lucky than good. Uh, you know, these cold cases are tough to work, but I, I don't want to jump ahead in anything. I want you to be able to ask you questions and let me move along with you. All right. Um, so how did you initially become involved in this Jane Doe's case? Did anything draw you to it or was it just assigned to you? So I am the one and only cold case detective there is no other detectives here in my agency uh, who are assigned to cold case. I am fortunate that I have had over the years some volunteers, uh, of which I still have several who help me out in digging into some of the cases, background uh, investigating that they are capable of doing at their level and their drive and all the time they put in has really been beneficial in, you know, several cases over the years. They're here volunteering. They don't get paid, and 
because a few of them put in 400 hours a year. So <clears throat> that's a lot of time. Uh, since I am the only cold case investigator, this is one of, at the time I first got in the cold case, of about 22 or 23 cases that I had assigned to me. So um, I'll just walk you through, if you want, everything with this investigation. Um, when I first got here and looking at the case, our victim was listed as a Jane Doe and was buried here in a local potter's field, the Brooksville Cemetery. It was, uh, she was buried in the cemetery as a Jane Doe. Uh, back in 2015, in July, I believe I had an order called an exhumation order to have her body exhumed. And with the help of Dr. Erin Kimmelly and her students and coworkers, I'd say, with USF, they came and once... We found the proper grave, and she was un it was unearthed. Uh, they recovered the remains, which were then turned over to the medical examiner's office here in the Fifth, Fifth Circuit Medical Examiner's Office. The bones were then ex recovered and re extracted um, from the grave, and we sent them to the state lab, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and they were able to develop a profile for DNA and were able to get a full profile, which that profile was then entered into the national database. <clears throat> so the national database, uh, in fact, the Bowens actually, let me back up, might've went to, I believe they actually went to the University of North Texas. At the time, University of North Texas was the only place that all human remains that are recovered in our country were being sent to where they would perform the DNA testing on because they have linked to the database and when they were able to develop a profile in this particular case they then entered it into the national database to a, an attempt to identify her the national database has a criminal side where you put in suspects of crimes and the other side is missing persons or unidentified human remains. We didn't get a, an association in the national database. Uh, <clears throat> fast forward through time till uh, sometime about 2018, I'd say 2019, there was new DNA testing that had just come on the on the radar, it was involving genealogy. And uh, I first took the DNA that we had a full sample of and had it sent to a genealogy lab. <clears throat> and they had worked on it and were unable to develop a profile. They then sent it, it was suggested we send it to Marshall University, which was I guess, assisting them in the tougher cases to extract enough DNA to be used for genealogy testing. Uh, that particular lab, uh, Marshall University, developed enough DNA. However, the genealogy lab that we first were using was unable to develop the profile of the DNA enough to enter it into the proper database. So... I then went to another genealogy lab, and that is Othram. Now, now, the other lab that I sent it to initially, I'm not going to tell you who they are, because there's nothing against them. They just didn't have the capabilities at the time, and I've already had several other successes with them. They're a very good lab. But we then went to Othram Labs, where I sent them the profile to work, uh, it took them about eight, eight months, I'd say, to be able to extract the DNA properly. And whatever they do, that's a question I guess you'd have to have for them. Uh, and then once they get a profile for genealogy, then they are able to upload it into a site called GEDmatch. So GEDmatch exists, and it is a separate uh, search engine to be used by these companies law enforcement does not, doesn't have 
direct access to them. So <clears throat> once they put the profile in GEDmatch, that's where they were able to get association with that profile. And that came back to family of of the unidentified woman, the Jane Doe, who they were pretty positive it was a woman by the name of Peggy Joy Shelton. So that's that's how it all came up, uh, up to why we went to the genealogy lab and how to get to Othram. Um, so do you want me to continue going with it, or do you want to ask me other questions right now? Um, I can go ahead and ask you a question that I know I've been wondering. Do you know okay. if Peggy was ever reported missing? Uh, no, she wasn't. Um, through family interviews that I conducted over the phone, she had a tough life. Uh, she's from Kentucky, and to say her domestic relationship wasn't the best with her husband, and she ended up leaving sometime in 1971 from Kentucky. She just, she left and came here to Florida. So as an adult, especially uh, back in 1971, the way police took reports on missing uh, missing adults and missing people as a whole, but especially missing adults, especially a husband and wife, you know, I don't know, well, you guys probably had a fight. They'll cool off or they'll come back eventually. They're an adult. They're doing their own thing. Uh, you know, so they, she was not missing. Uh, she was not reported missing. Do you think that her not being reported missing hindered the investigation? Well, she left of her own free will. So it's tough, even in today's standards, unless you had some mental disability or some other issues uh, pushing you away from your family uh, to just walk away for whatever reason. Uh, it's tough to take, to officially file somebody's a missing person. Again, there's a lot of different variables that come into play. But in her particular case, she just left because of her conditions at home weren't uh, very favorable for her. And Obviously, now in hindsight, you can look back. Who knew how she was going to end up? Uh, obviously, I'd like to think that she herself didn't believe she was going to end up in this position. So um, it's tough to say if it would really hinder the investigation because obviously time hinders any investigation. But, you know, she didn't, she didn't plan on ending up this way, I'm sure. Right. So... We know that you worked with Othram, and you mentioned another lab you've worked with previously. Are there any ongoing cases that you're working with genealogy on that you want to highlight right now? Because we know that genetic genealogy and genomic sequencing cost a decent amount of money. And when we worked in a forensic anthropology lab, a large part of our job was fundraising for those cases. So are there any cases that you are fundraising for that you want to give a shout out to? Uh, actually, uh, no, really at this time I, I've had about, uh, six cases, I believe solved with, gen with genealogy. Um, I think three, two or three with Othram, two or three with Parabon, one with, uh, uh, one with another uh, another lab that recently came on um, innovative forensics. Uh, so all three of them I've had successes with. And in fact, one of my cases <clears throat> with Othram, uh, they were able to put it out on like a fundraising page and an independent company or group came forward and paid for all the uh, testing for that case, for that investigation. So they were really great. Um, currently, I only have one. I, I still have one person unidentified in another investigation, but Othram is working on that. And the other case I have 
right now we're at a standstill because we are unable to get enough workable DNA from the skull of this individual. And uh, other than that, all my other unidentified victims and remains and even suspects have all been identified. Wow, that is amazing. I'm very fortunate in that regard. So, yeah, that's really, really awesome. <clears throat> yeah. I've, I've, told, uh, I've told these labs when I speak to their representative, and I have a very good rapport with the individuals in all these labs, um, my loyalty, I like to stick with them. They do, you know, they know what they're doing, but my loyalty is to my victims. So if one lab is unable to get me the results because they don't have the capabilities or um, they're not up, you know, I haven't caught up to the other lab, I want to go where it's going to best serve my victim to be able to identify them or bring the killer or killers to justice. Um, so that's where my loyalty lies is to my victims and their families. And I think that's where every investigator's loyalty would be not to the lab that they like or who gives them the best deal or whatever. It should be to the victims to get the job done. Yeah, I think that is really amazing. Um, it's, it's expensive, the genealogy testing. I'm sure if you said you worked in forensics or a forensic lab, you, you know how expensive it is or have an idea anyway. Yes, we do. We definitely do. Yeah. yeah. But that is one thing we do like about Authorm is that they create that fundraiser for you. Yeah, I'm glad they did. I mean, it's it's been really uh, very productive for me and obviously being able to <clears throat> identify my victims and be able to give those victims back to the family for burial and, you know, for those reasons. So we noticed on the press release that this Jane Doe was, who we now know as Peggy, was actually identified back in August of 2022, but was only publicly released recently. Can you shed any light on that decision to release her identity at this particular time? Yeah, so originally when she was identified, when Othram first gave me the results, they worded it in the sense that these are, this is the association we have, and this is who we believe it is. So I then reached out to through, did some computer work on my own and identifying the people they had given me. Then I reached out to the local law enforcement in Kentucky with the Hopkins County Sheriff's Office, and they were able to shed some light on the, the family because it was it's a small county now today of about 40,000 people. It must have been really small 50 years ago. A lot of people know each other, a lot of family, a lot of relations. So they helped me in finding relatives of Peggy's. And then I was able to talk to the relatives because I want to verify first 100% that it is her before we go any further. And I say it definitely is. Although scientifically, we're pretty certain at that point, but you have to have a confirmatory DNA test done. So... I was able to find her son, and through Othram, they mailed him a kit. He then took his DNA and mailed it back to Othram, where they were able to confirm through science that it was 100% that it was his mother, and it was Peggy. So once we were able to identify her 100%, I called the family back, let the family know, and then they gave me a little bit of the background story on her life and that she had left. And then uh, then I have now the process of, since it is a homicide investigation, to reach out to my prosecutor to give him the facts that I know and get his permission to release the bones, the Peggy, back to her family when the time comes. Then I had to get in touch with the medical examiner's office and talk to them because now they have to take the death certificate and change it because she was a Jane Doe. Now we put a name to her through science that she's Peggy Joyce Shelton. Actually, her maiden name is Peggy Joyce Nelson. 
and put that put that back uh, on them for them to now issue a new death certificate and make, make arrangements for the medical examiner's office and the family to communicate so we can get the, her remains sent up to the family in Kentucky. Uh, I also had some persons of interest that I wanted to try to run down and do some investigating before this was made public <clears throat> to everyone so I could have the element of surprise when I went to go and interview some people who might have some further knowledge of this investigation. So after doing a little bit of <clears throat> investigating in that regard, uh, came down to a point that I don't think this is going to hurt by releasing this information. It is 50 years old and maybe it'll help out and I can get generate some phone calls and get some people with some information who know possibly exactly what happened and who the killer or killers are in this case. That's why I would choose to re release it now. I didn't see any harm in it at this point. Yeah, that's obviously a lengthy process. And I think it's easy on the side of the public to speculate or wonder, you know, what's going on on the investigation side or make assumptions about what's happening, why something might be taking longer. Are there any common misconceptions or myths about cold case investigations that you'd like to address or clear up? I guess a lot of people probably think that cold cases, nobody cares about them. No one's working or doing any work on them. Uh, you know, we're an agency of about 240 sworn deputies. So we're, um, I guess, a mid-sized mid agency for Florida. But uh, coming from New York City Police Department, we didn't even, when I was a detective there, we didn't even form a cold case, I want to say, until sometime in the early to mid-90s for the largest police department in the country. So, uh, and then now the unit has been running since then. But the point is, all agencies, whether you're that big or our size or smaller, it's very difficult to dedicate one person or one investigator, two investigators or more just to work on cold cases because there's generally so much current, so many, so many current cases to investigate or new homicides that come in that you have to work them. Obviously, you have a, a body at a crime scene. You have witnesses. You, you know, all the things we can do today, we couldn't do 50 plus years ago. So you have to investigate the new cases. And in a lot of agencies, and mine included, uh, I'm called on to assist our guys with the newer cases as well. So it takes time away from the cold cases because these people have already been deceased for a period of time. Uh, we have to work on new cases where, you know, that happens today, now, to run down everything we possibly can. So... I think the public probably doesn't realize all that goes into a homicide investigation and thinks that agencies aren't working them when most agencies do have one person or maybe more dedicated to working the cold cases. Um, so that's what I like to think. That's probably what they, their hang-up is. And, and, of course, television is, you know, people watch TV shows and, they see everything wrapped up in 45 minutes on TV and one person sends the DNA out at eight o'clock in the morning by, by noon, they already have the person identified. And, you know, by four o'clock that day, they're already arrested and it's done and they go on to the next case. There's so much more work involved in, in every case. You can't imagine that how much work there is in a homicide investigation. <clears throat> I wish it was that easy. Yeah. I, People, I think, get so caught up in what they see on TV, and that's, that's exactly how it goes. And thank you for clearing up some of the misconceptions that come with that. Um, have, over the past couple of years, have you noticed an increase in public engagement with these types of investigations, specifically like unidentified DOE cases? Yeah, I'll say that there are, uh, there are probably more than a handful of 
I guess you can call it true TV, true crime shows. Um, I personally have been on Cold Justice and twice and a couple of other true crime shows. I think I've done five of them already, um, highlighting some of my murder investigations where, you know, it's beneficial to get the story out there and, and try to you know, put some pressure on the bad guy or witnesses. So there is a huge following of people in true crime. Uh, and, and it's a good thing because people, uh, I mean, it's good and bad, I guess, but it's a good thing because it brings people, makes them more aware of these cases. And, uh, and the bad thing is obviously that everybody becomes a detective from the couch and <clears throat> I myself have received phone calls and emails that, you know, everybody's telling me, uh, you know, this is what you need to do. And, you know, th you should do this, this, and this, did you do this? And they're just repeating what they hear on television. So it's, uh, it's, you know, like anything else, it's got good and bad, but I, I think the good outweighs the bad because it shows that, people who don't call in and don't cooperate and the reasons why in some cases, uh, and then the reasons when they finally come forward. So I, I think it gives some people maybe a little extra courage who might know information or are just afraid to come forward and get involved in the court process or have repercussions from the suspect and or family. So based on that, if I understood you correctly, you, would agree that the media and things like true crime podcasts, they do have an impact on your work as a cold case investigator. Yeah. Yes. True crime, true crime, um, television shows. I've done two other podcasts, I believe. So yeah, there's a lot of people who like them and they follow them. And they, and I know you, you know how many followers you have or listeners, I'd say. So that'll broadcast this case and get it out there. And maybe someone will, have some information that they can help. And, you know, that's the purpose of all this is to try to get it out there and bring awareness to other people. So I know that a lot of consumers of true crime, they want to help and they want to bring attention to cases. Do you have any specific tips for true crime consumers that can be better? It's the way to help you as an investigator or other investigators in the most effective way. Well, I guess if the, to anybody who's going to listen, uh, if if you know someone who's committed a you know a horrible crime, meaning a murder, rape, abduction of a individual, adult or child, anything like that, uh, and you have that information, or no one's who has know someone who has that information, get it into the hands of your local law enforcement. You can remain anonymous through. <clears throat> Anonymous phone calls, Crime Stoppers. Um, if you know something that of that nature, you need to report it because that person didn't just do it one time. Uh, they do it the first time and then it gets easier after that. I think you make a great point there. And I think a lot of people are scared to come forward because they think that they have to publish their identity when, like you said, that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, in one of my cases, I've able to find uh, quite a number of people who had information in regards to an old murder, and people don't get involved because they don't want to be involved, or they have a distrust for law enforcement, or they are afraid of the bad guy. You know, there's plenty of reasons why. You know, they live on the skirts of society. They have a drug or alcohol problem and don't think anybody's going to believe them or, you know, they're in you know, prostitution or other things where they feel their word is going to not be taken as credible. So <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons why people don't report things. Well said. So moving on a little bit, how does the emotional aspect of working on long-standing cold cases impact you and how do you cope with that emotional toll well so like i said earlier i my kids are all grown now it's just me and my wife so my 
my wife Nancy, you know, she'll ask me how my day was, or she'll talk a little about something, and um, she helps me to stay stay focused sometimes and steady on and on things because it, it is an emotional roller coaster at times. You know, <clears throat> a new murder. If you're an investigator who takes any pride in your work anywhere in the in the world, but especially in our country, and you care about your victims and you care about the family and you try to do what's right, bring justice to the family and the victim, caress the people involved, you do your job to make the best case you can, but the prosecution isn't going to be able to not go forward. And in a new investigation, a murder that happens today that we can do all that and maybe arrest the bad guy we're really really lucky and we get him today you know you have so much involvement with that family and initial involvement and interviews and then when you find the murderer and tell them that that could take you know you'd be involved with them but initially a couple of days a week two weeks and then down the road trial but there's a big gap and time that you would spend with that person. In a cold case investigation, especially one that's any any time, whether it's three years old or 30 years old, you're talking to the family more than likely on the day of their loved one's death, on the day of, you know, some day of significance, maybe their birthday. You're calling them with updates. You know, you have a lot more contact with them over time it's very long-standing uh, a, a much longer relationship and you bond with these people your victims family members and you become part of the family um, I do and I feel their pain and suffering and that is is very difficult to absorb all that and then I was just recently talking about this with a few friends uh one of the guys in atf who's working with us and you know when you have these long relationships with the family and it's a long time and then you see the family you know it's kind of a catch-22 you know they're good people you're a good person you've done justice for them but every time that family member sees you it's a reminder in my opinion of how they know you so if it's 10 years later after their child or wife's you know, spouse's death, 20 years later, 30 years later, forever, you bump into them in the supermarket 30 years after the case is over, it's always a reminder of how you formed your relationship. So I, I think it's very difficult on the family and on the investigator because it, it takes a toll on you emotionally. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. So on these cold cases that do have, you know, cases that last 20, 30, 50 years, obviously one investigator probably won't be working that the entire time, but when these cases lack that immediate gratification, how do you stay motivated and push to solve these cold cases when there's little to no resolve? Well, it's, you know, like I was saying just before, you know, the the case you resolve relatively quickly, you get that instant gratification. You got the bad guy, committed the crime. You know, it's a, giving the dog a bone right away. And in these cases, you got to go out and dig a lot. <laughs> so I'm a dog that does something. It takes a, a year maybe to find a bone. Six months, six weeks, six years, you, you know, uh, for me personally, it's just not wanting to give up and continue the fight to move forward to resolve the case because this person was murdered and this person needs to be back with their loved ones in, in a, you know, in their cemetery, in a grave, where they're cremated, whatever, and the victim demands justice and you want to get that individual who committed this crime because it isn't the only crime they committed more than likely so for all those reasons you want to stay focused as best you can and move forward to get that person responsible 
so you can keep them off the street so they can't hurt somebody else because one person can affect not just that victim that they took away from their family, but the entire family. It's a lot of pain for a lot of people uh, as a result of what one person's actions are. Absolutely. So kind of shifting gears, um, after you've worked on on Peggy's case and other Doe cases, um, are there any adjustments or changes that you wish or that you wish you could tell your previous self or to other current investigators who are working on Doe cases? So you're asking, does, do I have any words of wisdom for people investigating these cases? Yeah. Is that basically what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, don't give up. Be persistent. Uh, remember who you're working for. You're working for the victim. You're working for the victim's family. Because um, that's your goal, and it isn't anything else, you're going to be successful and just stay persistent on the investigation and stay focused. And at least in my opinion, my goal when I came to cold case was to solve as many cases as possible. And the ones I can't solve at least get to a place where I've advanced it 10 steps, 20 steps, wherever now maybe the next person who comes after I retire will be able to solve the case, bring resolution, bring resolution to the case, get the killer, identify the victim, give them back to whatever family is around. So I think most, that's really great advice. Thank you. So You're the welcome. most important thing would just be keeping their cases alive and not giving up. Um, Correct. So I think we only have a couple more questions for you. Looking ahead, what do you foresee as the future of solving cold cases, whether that be doe cases or homicide cases, and particularly looking at technological advances? Well, I know that right now, genealogy is the way of the future for law enforcement as a whole. Uh, because so many people want to know their heritage and they, you know, go to Ancestry, 23andMe, they they go to these web um, websites, they go to these uh, research places, these places that do DNA, collect it and analyze it and then the, the painstaking uh, act of researching all uh, the people to get to identify somebody, um, all that work that's being done, that's been so successful for a lot of law enforcement agencies already in its short existence. I think when that develops a little further uh, on DNA testing where they can get even more results from less DNA, uh, that is going to be a big, big contribution. It already is to law enforcement's investigative uh, techniques, but it's going to be a huge plus and they can even get better at it. Um, I don't know what else technology has on the rise. Uh, I mean, the genealogy has been great so far. And I'm sure you look at all the cases around the nation that have been solved. You hear about the big ones like the Golden State Killer uh, in California where they law enforcement did a great job and you had an evil person out there who raped about 57 women and killed about 13 men and women. Uh, when that case came around, that was a big, big case that hit the, hit the media and was nationwide broadcast. Well, for that big case, there's another hundred small cases that you really don't hear about on that level, but they're all success stories through genealogy. So I'd say that that's the most impactful 
tool that's come along in a long time. You know, just the furtherance of DNA. DNA itself has been a great tool. It's cleared the innocent people for the most part and helped make a good case on the guilty, you know, the bad guy. So lastly, if someone has information about Peggy Shelton's murder, how can they reach out to you or submit a tip? Well, they can send me an email at the sheriff's office here. My email is uh, pretty easy. It's on the website. It's uh, G. Lloydgren, my last name, L-O-Y-D-G-R-E-N, at HernandoSheriff.org. Or they can call the sheriff's office at the main number uh, and ask for me, 352-754-6830, and just ask for a cold case. Um, My direct line, and they might not get me, but I'll give it to you, it's 352-797-3714. That's how they can get a hold of me. Uh, I will take anybody's phone call and talk to them about Peggy's case or any other case. Um, They can call me anytime. Thank you. And is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation before we let you go? Uh, Gee, I don't know. There's, there's, uh, that's a tough one, I guess. It's I, I think you covered a lot of the basic stuff to get in there, but um, and good points you've asked. Um, and again, if here's one thing I can add that, which is kind of involving her case, but you asked me earlier if she was ever reported missing. So, what people can do uh, to help in the identification of some missing persons, if you have any family members that have gone missing that you haven't seen in, you know, one month or 10 years or 20 years, go to your local law enforcement agency, give them a a sample of your DNA that they can upload into the national database to try to find them. There are tens of thousands of missing persons reported in the in the in the country there's probably a hundred thousand plus i don't know the exact numbers um but there are thousands of people reported missing some don't still get reported missing believe it or not but for the most part there's all these people missing and then down the road someone stumbles across some bones and we find that individual so if we already have dna in the database we can help identify that person, whether they were a murder victim or just died of natural causes or killed themselves, whatever it is. But at least we get a jump on the DNA and get it out there. So I can't tell you how many cases I've recently gotten and been involved with that no one was reported missing uh, for different reasons. And back in the 70s and 80s, generally a lot of the cases once if it was an underage person and law enforcement took a report, a lot of times that case, once that person hit 18, they just closed the case because now they're an adult. So the person never was entered as a missing person. The DNA didn't exist, obviously, 40 or 50 years ago, but they were never entered into any databases. So there were loopholes in the system. Most of that's been corrected over the years, and law enforcement as a whole does a much much better job with missing persons and the public is more aware and they pay attention and people call but we could still improve it somehow i'm sure if you get together and work on those issues but if anybody has loved ones missing go and report them missing go and give you dna that'll definitely help in the future for people like me who are involved in a you know human remains case or a murder victim who's found five years later in the woods uh it would help the identification and then most times would help to identify some suspects instead of waiting that extra six months or a year on top of the years already so 
<clears throat> that's always a good thing. And it is a issue in our nation and and the world. I think that was an amazing point to add. We've talked about that a few times on our podcast, just how people can submit their DNA if they want to and how they can help by doing that. Um, yeah, because, you know, uh, just one final point. I'm sorry. But no, you're totally fine. When you're when you're dealing with these cases uh, and people were willingly giving putting their DNA and uploading it to JedMatch, then they were getting a little apprehensive. The bottom line is you're going to put your DNA in. The murderer is not going forward to put his DNA in and see if it hits anywhere. It's cousins, nieces, nephews, second cousins. It's people who are related who live on the other side of the country. They're doing the DNA and entering it. The murderer who's gone undetected for years and killed 20, 30, 40 women or children, he's not going to go forward and put his DNA in. So the way we're catching these evil people is from their extended family members who put it in. And then the hard work of the genealogist people and DNA analysts, that's how we're able to get to them. So, you know, a little positive note out there for anybody who listens to your podcast to, you know, speak well of DNA. Because if you're an innocent person and have nothing to lose, why not do it to help out in an investigation? Uh, and again, you have nothing to worry about. Uh, the, the people who've committed the crimes have something to worry about. And they're not coming forward. So if you want to get the evil people off the street and make our society safer for all the innocent people, that's, you know, any little thing you could do to help, that's what I would suggest. If you have, you know, family members who are missing or, uh, you know, things like that. But I would do that. Uh, would definitely help law enforcement in investigations throughout the country. Well... I know we just want to give you a huge thank you for doing this interview with us and, you know, talking to our listeners and helping them learn a little more about these types of investigations. If you ever have anything that we could do for you, if you have a case that needs publicity or anything like that, we would be happy to do an episode or give it a shout out on our podcast. <clears throat> I definitely will keep you in mind. Um, if you want to, I gave my email out. If you want to shoot me an email, uh, I obviously I have your phone number here in this email, but um, I can. You have mine then, I guess. So, if any time in the future you want to email, you can, or if you want to call me, you can. And if I come up with something that I think you guys could maybe help us, um, I would definitely will call you and let you know. Are you a podcast based out of Florida or? No, we're actually out of the Midwest. I'm based in Illinois and Zoe's based in Missouri. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, listen, one thing I'll tell you that I've been all over the country interviewing uh, murder suspects and witnesses. People come to Florida. Everybody comes here from everywhere else in the country. So... Um, I've been to Missouri on one of my cold cases. Uh, I've, I've been out to, geez, I've been to California. I've been to Colorado. I've been in New Mexico. I've been to Texas, Boston, New York, uh, Carolinas, you know, North Dakota. It, it, this type of work takes you everywhere because people move. And, you know, witnesses, suspects, ex, ex-wives and ex-husbands of people. Um, so you had to track them down. So I was just curious of where your listening, uh, you know, where your audience would be located. But obviously it's a podcast. They, you know, they're everywhere. Um, and, and I hope we're uh, successful and I, I get some uh, information that could help out in the case. I'll let you know if we do. That would be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I hope you have a wonderful day, and thank you so much again for talking to us. Thank uh, you. So you're much. welcome. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, 
caring and putting this type of podcast out. It's our pleasure. All right. Well, you, you ladies have a good day. You too. You too. Bye. All right. Thank you. I just want to give a huge shout out and thank you to both Detective Lloydgren and the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. The work Detective Lloydgren does for cold cases is absolutely incredible, and we can't thank him enough for allowing us to interview him. Yeah, and we both learned so much, so we hope you guys learned so much, even beyond Peggy's identification. Like, I feel like I learned a whole lot, and he was super great, and just thank you so much to everybody involved in making this happen. Peggy's identification is a story of success and perseverance from so many people, but it is also a tragic and all-too-common story. There are so many people out there who are waiting to be identified, but there are also so many investigators doing everything they can to make sure that happens. If you know anything about the murder of Peggy Joyce Shelton, please contact the Hernando County Sheriff's Office or Detective Lloydgren. If you didn't catch the contact info in the interview, it will also be on our website, theunnamedo.com. And we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we definitely hope to bring you more interview-type episodes in the future when more John and Jane Doe's are identified. Also, thank you guys so much for supporting us and giving us the space to release episodes whenever we're able to. We do this not only for these John and Jane Doe's, but also for you listeners. Yeah, we really love you guys, and we appreciate all the support. You make all this possible. As always, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Unnamed Doe Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. This episode was written by Madden Delaney, and a special thank you to Detective Lloydgren. All editing and music was done by Zoe Reese.